If we have a Bible near you, grab that, open up to the gospel according to Matthew. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning, verses 14 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Well, how can we make Christianity more attractive to the world? And should we even try? People have explored different answers in the last century and a half to that question. Some have gutted Christianity of its unattractive parts. What's repelling here might be the question that's asked. And mainline Protestantism has forgotten that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing and has largely, many denominations, lost the gospel. Others have hidden Christianity. Maybe they're asking, what can we downplay or soften here? But as sin and hell aren't felt needs, doctrinal felt needs, the next generation inevitably forgets those doctrines and doesn't understand the cross and what they have left is self-help. Still others have decorated Christianity. What do we need to do for people to show up? And that'd be the question. And when attracting people to church is in the driver's seat, inevitably that which we're attracting them to is signed-lined. The main attraction, the gospel, gets lost in the noise. Well, in each case, we're tempted to prioritize attraction over salvation or the world's good opinion over the world's good. And in each case, the initial spark, that question, may be well-intentioned. And while these sparks may attract, they will also burn the thing down Lots of people may come to Christianity like people come to a burning house for warmth because everyone else is there. The neighborhood has come out and there's some community on the street, maybe for the spectacle, but they don't come for Christ. And some, in response to these problematic answers to the question, how can we attract, make Christianity attractive, reject the idea that Christianity should be attractive at all. And they may define themselves by being rejected, obscure, and obtuse. There are, after all, Bible verses for that. Well, in each case, and this is where the trouble begins, we have left the Bible for our answers. We've left the Bible and looked elsewhere. So how can we make Christianity more attractive to the world? Or maybe that question is actually off just a bit. Instead, how can we show the world how attractive Christ really is? Of course, we know the gospel travels with words, but is there anything that God would have us to do that would make those words and make that gospel appear as beautiful as it is? The answer is yes. And let's read together Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, where Jesus says this. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, this was my first ever favorite Bible verse. I was a new Christian. I was attending a Bible study. I don't remember the context, but I had to bring a verse that I liked or that related to something, and I had come across this somehow. And when I read it, I was astonished that other people in the Bible study, we're familiar with the verse. There are thousands and thousands of verses in the Bible. How is it that they also knew this very specific verse? Later I saw it printed on a flyer and then I heard a song based on it by the newsboys, Shine. You may remember that if you were a believer in the 80s, 90s, sorry. An incredible coincidence, this verse showing up, it was to me. I was sure that God had a message for me. And in fact, in plain fact, as it was on the pages of scripture, yes, it was a message for me. 
And it was the way that I was understanding and explaining what God was actually doing in my life at the time. The light of Christianity, the light of Christ in the lives of my friends who took an interest in me, who invited me to come along with things, who invited me into their homes and uh, enjoyed me and sought me was the light of Christ on my life and I felt its heat. Well, this verse wasn't theoretical to me then and it's not theoretical to me now. And neither is it for you, for there are people in the darkness for whom you and I care very, very deeply. They can't see the ugliness of sin in the dark, and that saddens us. And they can't see the beauty of Christ in the dark, and that saddens us all the more. And the closer we might be to a person, the harder this is. And you may even weep for them at surprising times. You might even say with Paul in Romans 9.3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. Wow. I wish I could take their place, he says. I don't think God would grant that prayer. No, God would not grant that prayer. Uh, And I don't actually think Paul prayed that prayer. But it expresses his depth of desire for the unbelievers he had in mind in that passage. The Jewish people. He would do anything for their sake. And so you might do anything for certain people. Well, is there anything that we can do? Is there anything that God would have us do to help them along to believe? To prime the wall for the paint of the gospel? Yes, there is. And today's text has a simple, single imperative. Let your light shine. That's what Jesus wants all of his disciples to do. And this morning we're going to focus the laser of that verse with four questions in order to burn it into our souls. And here they are. Whose light are we talking about? Where do we shine it? How do we shine it? And how far does it reach? First question, who's light? Who is the you and you are the light of the world? What kind of extraordinary, talented, religiously devout, influential, and bright human beings are these? What kind of Bill and Melinda Gateses of the first century does Jesus go and find? Turn back with me just a page or so to chapter 4, verse 18. We'll read a few verses here. We'll get a window into how Jesus kicked off his recruitment strategy. Gives us some insight into who he recruits. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two, bro- two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the vote was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Well, these men were working nets, but they were not net workers. They were, sorry, I was so proud of that one last night. Um, <laughs> here's another one. They were, they were fishermen, but Jesus would make them fishers of men. From the very start, Christianity has been a religion of commoners, People called to Jesus and sent by Jesus. Mission is baked in. Follow me. And what will they do as they follow him? He will make them fishers of men. The call to discipleship is and has always been a call to disciple making. 
it is not auxiliary to the Christian life or something that we advance to as though an upper level course. It is integral to the Christian life. Every Christ follower a fisher because that is what Christ is doing. The structure of Matthew's gospel reflects this. Here in chapter four, Jesus calls his disciples and then Matthew gives us an outline for what comes next. In verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It's an outline for what follows. In chapters five through seven, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, a kind of summary of his teaching ministry. And then chapters eight through nine, his works. This is what it will look like to follow him. Direct engagement with the darkness. And then at the end of chapter nine, we get another summary. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction. And then in chapter 10, after Jesus' teaching and his works are wrapped up, in chapter 10, he calls his 12 disciples, they're listed by name, and he gives them authority to go out and do what he was doing, to teach and perform works in direct engagement with the darkness these 12 Jesus sent out. And that's exactly what they do, extending his words and his works. This whole thing is like a boot camp for the church, a shotgun to start the whole movement. We might be tempted to think that something really powerful would happen in our city if Jesus were to show up and start teaching and doing works. And we would be exactly right And that is exactly what Jesus is doing through his people. For wherever we find Jesus' disciples, we find an extension of both his words and his works in the world. Where we find Jesus' disciples, we see Jesus' light. So that's an answer to the question, whose light are we talking about? Well, it's the light of the disciples, an extension of Jesus' own light in the world. Next question, and back to chapter five. Where do we shine it? Where do we shine it? Verses 14 and 15. The simple answer, for all to see. For all to see. Jesus gives us two images. Think of a city on a hill. Awfully hard to hide one of those, right? They're on a hill. You can hide a city at the bottom of a hill. You would never know Albuquerque is around the corner unless you knew that Albuquerque was around the corner when you're coming from the east through the mountains. And of course, it's a beautiful scene coming over the mountains and seeing the city all lit up. But the mountain makes a pretty good hiding. Uh, It blocks the city quite well from the other side of the mountain. In my own experience, as I thought of this, I actually don't remember ever seeing a city on a hill. But the first century readers would have seen a city on a hill, it would have been the city of Jerusalem, gleaming in the sun, visible to travelers from far away, who would say, aha, there it is, where God meets with his people. Does this mean that Jesus' disciples are to create and populate a city at a particular place on a hill? No, it doesn't. Let's chase this down. It may be that Jesus is using this idea of a city on a hill as a mere illustration. It may well be. But there are some good reasons to think that Jesus is also saying that his disciples are the new Jerusalem. The bright and shining people the prophets looked forward to. To call his disciples the light of the world in context of Old Testament expectation is actually pretty shocking. So follow me here. Ever since Adam, humanity has walked in darkness. God came to Abraham and said that his children would form a nation. And that nation would be a kind of idealized humanity. This was turning humanity around. This was where God's work would begin. 
of recovering his commitment to humanity and the world. They were to be a kingdom of priests to God and they would be his people and he would be their God. The prophet Isaiah spoke to the nations and he said Israel was to be a light for the nations. Israel, a light. And yet he said to Israel, who is blind but you? You can't even see. You walk in darkness. So if Israel, the light of the world, is actually in darkness, then where is the solution? Isaiah spoke of a servant that God would send, a servant called the light of the nations, a servant from within Israel, who would be exactly all that Israel was ever called to be. This, the perfect, true human, perfectly righteous and obedient to God. And this servant would actually die for the sins of his people in order then to be raised and to rise like the sun on his people, as we've gone over over the last few weeks. And in doing so, light them like a torch of his glory and they would go throughout the world. All the nations looking to them and coming to them for light. And in the book of Isaiah, it's even apparent that this future community would be a multinational community. It's wild if you read Isaiah, but this future people on whom the Lord's son would rise would be a combination of, it says, one-third Assyria, one-third Egypt, one-third Israel. That's the point. This people is from throughout the whole world and God will gather his people from throughout the whole world and rise on them like the sun and light them up. Humanity redeemed. He says in Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So you, do you hear it now? When Jesus says to his fishermen disciples, you are the light of the world, he's saying you are the seed of my messianic community, this new people Not those who share the blood of Abraham, but those who share the faith of Abraham, faith in the true son of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. Through you, God is turning on the lights. But this people, this new Jerusalem, would not be centralized in Jerusalem, but would be a city, if you will, spread throughout the world, sent out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. You can't hide a city on a hill. And in this city, you can't hide Desert Springs Church. In fact, in the world, you can't hide Desert Springs Church. You can see us from North Africa. You can see us from the reservations of New New Mexico and Arizona, where many of you just a few months back, in the last few months, have been there cutting wood and delivering it to homes in the name of Christ and carrying for people through the Christmas store. And you can see us from the hills of Guatemala where the indigenous Mayan Rabanala Chi people read and listen to their New Testament and come to medical and dental clinics and hear the gospel and receive help for clean water in their region in the name of Christ and when their pastors gather for training. All of that, God's work in and among you. And they're lit up in shining in their region, the light spreading. We've been thinking globally just a bit. Let's think locally. How is it that you can see some of the cities in this world from space? A giant floodlight into space? No. A bazillion small little lights shining into space. And so being a light for Christians isn't just for Christians who are far away from home, who leave home. It's for Christians, everyone, wherever home is. Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before others that they may see 
your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, friends, you, you are God's walking billboard. You are God's attractional evangelistic event. Your presence is the very presence of the Lord's light in the world. So don't cover up the sign and don't lock the doors to the event and don't put your light, to use Jesus' illustration, under a basket. If Jesus' first image of a city on a hill had an international flavor to it, then this second image of a a house lamp has a more intimate flavor to it. It's the very thing Jesus knows will be a temptation for his disciples is to hide their light. More on that later. For now, consider the purpose of a house lamp. Why do you bring it in a house and light it? In order that it may give light to those that are in the house. And so why are you put where you are by the Lord in life? Why are you put in the job that you have on the street where you live? You were put there in order to give light to all of those that are in the house, in the classroom. What's up with us being tempted to basket our lamps? Let's think about that. We may think that our little lamp, and they're all little enough, can't make a dent. Well, don't get discouraged thinking your little life can't make a dent. Yes, it can make a whole bunch, and combined with others making a whole bunch of little dents, can make a crater. Think of how we might elevate the reputation of Christ in this church and the community this next year. Here's a really simple idea. Let's say there are about 600 showing up here on a Sunday morning and coming into this room. What if every one of 600 made sure to shine the light of Christ into someone's life they encountered each week of the year and connect that beauty, that brilliance, that encounter in some fashion with Christ and the church. Do the math, I had to do it twice. I have to do all math twice. I can hardly do math, I can hardly type math right in my iPhone. Here's the number. That's 31,200 encounters. And all everyone's got to do is turn it on for one encounter a week with someone somewhere to connect their life and love to the person of Christ and his people. So don't get discouraged thinking your little life can't make a dent. Sure it can. And all of ours can make a crater. We think this way with lots of things, don't we? As an employee at work, you don't think, ah, what I'm doing isn't needed. But you can feel that it's needed right in front of you with whatever is demanded of your time. Well, the person that's in front of you this week at the restaurant or at the gas station or the new hire at work, well, they need you as well. Think of this as musicians. A cellist doesn't play, doesn't not play during a concert because they aren't so sure it's really worth it. Well, they know they're a part of something much bigger and never question whether their part is to be played. So don't be discouraged. Make a dent, even if that's all you make. So maybe discouraged that we can't make a dent, or we may be tempted to think that the people around us are actually in the light. We may not say this, but you know, our neighbor with that beautiful family, our boss with that nicer office, a friend at the gym with that nicer car, looks like they're in the light. Uh, no, they're not in the light if they don't have Christ. They're in the pitch dark if they don't have Christ. And you're the one who knows it. A friend posted an obituary this week of a lovely, lovely person. They seem to have had a very full life. 69 years of life, 41 years of marriage, lots of meaningful work in their community, loved by all, traveled the globe, and died with her family. It is about exactly the script you would want, except there's no mention of the Lord. And I can't help but think 
that unless an unbelieving family member wrote the obituary, that this woman did not know the Lord. And so I presume she also died, however happy and full her life, in the dark. We may be discouraged we can't make a dent, or we may be tempted to think that people around us are actually, you know, just fine. They've got enough light. Or we may just be afraid of people and their opinion of us. And in this case, God has just shrunk. He is too small to our imagination. And their opinion is way, way too big. As Christ followers, we live for the Lord, but we also live for the world. Get that? We live for the Lord. And we live for the world. In fact, living for the world, the Lord, includes living for the world. There's no such thing as following Jesus by getting my life in order and living before the Lord. While not living before the world. For that is what Jesus has saved us in part to do. So if the world were a Christmas tree and every Christian a light, would you be bright, flickering, or invisible? And this is particularly convincing for those of us here, including myself, convicting for those of us here, including myself, who are in leadership. For we're more like those uh, lights on the Christmas tree where when they go out, the string goes out. There's just a consequence for pattern setting. It comes with leadership. And so we have to ponder this question even more seriously. If we got yanked out of the world tomorrow, would your neighborhood be any dimmer? Would your workplace be any dimmer? So think about that. Now you may have a whole lot of friends who live in darkness. Steward the incredible privilege of being a friend to these people. You know their names? Get their stories. Convey to them with your interest in their lives the great dignity that they have as an image bearer of God. Shock them with how much you actually care for them. A tip might be to figure out how you can connect that relationship with food and a conversation will follow and opportunities will follow. In your home, Starbucks before work, bringing them food to work, just think, This relationship is hard. How do I get it from here to there? Just add some food, however you do it, and uh, it'll probably get there. So you may have lots of friends in darkness, and uh, you just need to turn the light up. Just add food. It's the fuel for the lamp. Others of you may not have a whole lot of friends who live in darkness. And in this case, you may need to consider how you can restructure your life. Put it in your schedule, as Max Stiles says. You might restructure your life to get more sleep. You know, not watch that show or watch that game anymore because you want to get more sleep because that's important to you. Or you might restructure your life to participate in that activity or include the kids in that, that thing. You might restructure your life to eat better. You might restructure your life to complete a degree. Why not restructure your life for something of infinite and eternally lasting value, and that is the preciousness of a human soul. Consider and dwell on that word, let. Let your light shine. In a world where we don't have cars, and there's the neighborhood church, and anyone who lives within a few miles knows a number of people that go to that church on a Sunday morning. Getting light done is a little bit easier. What do we do in an environment like this, sort of an anonymous urban setting, where most of us are driving by thousands of people on our way to church, and we work with people who are different from those we live in a neighborhood with, who are different from those in the neighborhood where our church is? Consider this, and don't just not get a basket. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. Don't just not get a basket. He says, put it on a stand so that everyone can see it. So here's a place to start. Get out a piece of paper and draw a little map of your neighborhood. 
And then over the next three months, meet everyone in your neighborhood. Remember the food thing. So make some cookies, buy some cookies. Knock on the door and say, I've lived down the street from you for six years. I've never come down to say hi. Uh, it's long overdue. Hi. Uh, here's my name. What's your name? Just wanted to say hi, and now when they drive by, guess what? You went home and wrote their name down in a few things you learned. Now you wave. When you're sitting around in your front porch, uh, watching your kids bike in the street, and they drive by, you, you wave. And if the window's down, you say, hey, Joe, that all adds up. I have a memory I'm kind of ashamed of. Two years ago, it was about 11 o'clock at night, there was some banging at the door. And I looked through the little hole, and I saw a lady, and uh, she was doing this. I thought, what is this person doing outside my front door at 11 at night? I didn't answer the door. Um, you know, you hear these stories of people tricking you, trapping you. So the gal at the front door needs some help. You open the door, and, and so those kind of spook you. Well, you know, next day, I see this little blonde lady walking down the street. I'm like, oh, that's the gal who lives two doors down. I apologized to her. She said, okay. She heard something in her house as she was approaching her front door. Total missed opportunity. All I needed to have done was walk up with some food and say hi and get a name. And then when I peek through the little thing at night, she's comfortable swinging by my house because I have waved at her before. But now we know each other by name. And I say, is it Susan? And she says, yes. I go, okay. And I open the door and I go help her. So cookies, your neighborhood, your little map, just an idea. Another idea, low-hanging fruit. And you're at a restaurant or at retail. Look a person assisting you in the eye. And if it's true, say, you have taken very good care of me today. I was in retail for four years. Lots of positive encounters, lots of uh, words of thanks, and meaningful. Referrals are great, return business is great. I have a memory of a guy looking at me in the eye and saying, I want you to know you took very good care of me today. Ah, oh, you work hard, the numbers wear your brain out, some customers wear you down, and then someone does that? Where did that come from? Where did that soul come from? Was he a Christian? I don't know. But you could do that, and you could show up again and remember their name. Remember some things you learned about them, and say you want them to help you again. Restaurants are an easy way to do this. A little bit of strategy, a little bit of putting it in your schedule, a little bit of restructuring your life, around what's really important. Third question, how do we shine it? How do we shine this light? Well, we've been giving it away all along, and it's right here on the page, but we'll focus on it now. Verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Your good works, that's the substance of your light. When we hear the language of good works, we might hear in our heads donating to charity or helping a lady across the street. And I don't mean for you not to do those things. But Jesus has so much more in mind. And sometimes, like we may think of sin as just particular things that we don't do, we might think of good works in this case as particular things that we, we do. But it is more than that. Good works are any good and God-honoring things that we do in life because God saved us. The whole life lived for God's glory leaves a trail of these. It's everything we do because we're God's workmanship. We're his trophy on display, showing off his glory. And for the kind of life Jesus is has in mind, we actually need only to look around and listen around to the rest of his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters five through seven, of which Matthew 5, 14 through 16 is a point in these three chapters. He describes the lives of those on whom he rises like the sun. He describes what this otherworldly community is like. We're poor in spirit, 
and meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're merciful in heart, we're peacemakers. And we rejoice in our heavenly reward when we're maligned. And all of this we're blessed and it, you can tell. We don't murder but neither do we curse one another from hearts filled with hatred. We don't commit adultery but neither do we lust in our hearts. We don't divorce our spouses from neglect of our covenant. We're honest. Our yes is our yes and our no is our no. We give generously as there's need. We don't retaliate when offended. We love our neighbors including the ones who are our enemies. We pray always for the Lord's will as we have this morning to be done and for his kingdom to come. And we lay up treasures in heaven. And this life is not our life. And we aren't anxious about our life for the Lord takes care of the birds and we know because Jesus said so that we are more valuable to him than birds. And we aren't preoccupied with the specks in the eyes of others when there are planks in our own. We are not sinless but we are utterly and completely transformed and it shows There is something else going on in addition to all of those reasons for anxiety and anger which haven't left our life. This is what he means by good works. Here's how those good works then work themselves out as light in the world. Can I let Tim Keller do some heavy lifting here? And then we'll just shut the book and go home. He always just says it so well. If you are light... That means your life should be so beautiful that when it comes into contact with other parts of the environment, the beauty of your life shows up other things for what they really are. For example, if you're a Christian, then just by your very presence, you show up, you reveal the dishonesty in the business. You reveal the gossip in the office. You reveal the racism in your neighborhood. You reveal the corruption in your political ward. You reveal the promiscuity in your party just simply by being a Christian. You walk on, in, and it immediately makes the racism look like racism. It makes the promiscuity look like promiscuity. It makes the gossip look like gossip. It makes the corruption look like corruption. And just by saying, I'm going to live according to the truth, to the beauty of Jesus Christ, this is so. And if your life by its order, by the way in which you handle pressure, by the way in which you take criticism, by the way in which you treat the people who work under you, if you are like Jesus Christ, the beauty of that is going to show up the reality of the environment. A good light shows what real color is. So brothers and sisters, don't hide your light under a basket. It does not belong there. Don't hide it under the basket of anxiety unforgiveness, lust, hate, or making this world your life. And don't be intimidated by the world. And don't be jealous for the world. And don't be drawn into or cruel toward or be isolated from the world. And don't ignore the world. Instead, and here's the word, it does a lot of work for us. Illuminate the world. I love that word. Illuminate. Light guides and exposes. It's happy and it's clarifying. It includes distinction from and presence in the world. It's for and against the darkness. And most importantly, it's attractional. It's attractional. And it's not a bait and switch like those old bug zappers. Had one in the backyard growing up. I loved it. I don't know where they went. Uh, I think they killed the things that ate other things and so they're not around anymore, but I'd still have one in my backyard if we had enough bugs flying around. Okay, it's bait and switch. It's the light you come to and it kills you. This is not that way with Christ. With Christ, (laughs) with Christ, whatever it is that we're showing off is really the real thing and it's much, much better. Last question. How far does it reach? Verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Consider how far your light can reach. All the way down into the 
depth of the darkest corner of the human soul. And when that soul is enlightened to see Christ, their praise as far as heaven and eternity. Incredible. An awfully long way. And how marvelous is it that your very small good works that make only a dent actually reach that far. And how incredibly optimistic is Jesus' posture toward the watching world. He has other things to say about the world. But he fully expects that those from the darkness of the world, many, will see the good works of his disciples and then glorify God who's in heaven. Sometimes rehearsing how God does this can give us confidence that he will do it. To help make our expectations stronger for his work, I shot some emails to some friends this week. Can I read you some stories? I was near tears last night. No, I'll just admit it. I was crying last night reading these. Here's from one sister. I was raised Catholic, and everyone else in my family is still a practicing Catholic. My mom, in particular, has had some bad experiences with well-meaning but misdirected evangelical Christians and is very resistant to most gospel-related or direct spiritual discussions. But she is very interested by and attracted to the community we have as members of the body of Christ at DSC. She has repeatedly made comments by how struck she is by the generosity and service of our own church family. She has never experienced this community and is completely blown away that people, sometimes people we don't even know, have brought us meals for the birth of each baby, given us baby and kid clothes, toys and other items, to the point where we haven't even needed to buy any clothes for our daughter. She's almost five. Cleaned my house and set up meals for six weeks when I had ankle surgery and was on crutches, helped us pack, move, and unpack, donated sacrificially to our adoption, and helped us find meals and accommodations over the months we would be in Arizona for that adoption, and a million other examples over the past 10 years. If you haven't received that much care, don't feel neglected. They have been here 10 years, and they aren't way out front leaders in our church, but they're doing some different things in the ground and substantive ways but they've embedded themselves in the church and they've been loved deeply she continues related both of my parents were very skeptical of and afraid for our family as we began the journey to adopt an infant neither of them are comfortable with much risk and my mom in particular has seen and experienced some pain and suffering in adoption and was afraid that we wouldn't bond with an adopted baby and that it would adversely affect our other children in our marriage even to the point of divorce they remained hesitant even after he was born. But the second they saw him, they loved him. And the bond has only grown from there. The change in them and myself because of his adoption has been radical to the point where it has changed their entire perspective on and love for adoption. Concluding, my, my family sees the light in the works and family bond of God's people. And it rejoices her heart and mine. Here's an account from a brother. When my wife and I lived in Houston, and before we were believers, we lived next door to a Christian couple with four young children. I was an agnostic, while she was a burnt-out, not-even-nominal Catholic. This couple next door didn't have much. They always seemed to be just scraping by, but they were impassioned about what they were doing, and they were content. I once saw the father pray for wisdom when he was working on his car, how odd. And I couldn't help but notice the many Christian friends who came to their house for meetings. They seemed happy. They even sang together. We didn't have the passion they had. We didn't have the contentment they had. And we didn't have the friends they had. Within a year, my wife and I both became believers. And it was my neighbor next door who was instrumental in leading us to Christ. Here's another one. After more than 20 years... For those of you who are hanging on for loved ones, after more than 20 years of gospel witness to my siblings, my older sister has come to saving faith and been baptized in obedience to that faith. Her testimony includes her observing peace, strength, love, and faith in me. 
even though I was and am experiencing great struggle and pain and suffering with my physical body. That was consistent with my gospel proclamation. And as she observed all of this, she believed that my faith was real and that, and that the God of my faith was real. So she turned to him in faith and now glorifies our Father who is in heaven. And there are other stories like the story of one who was in the hospital for a time and Christian family and friends were so loving and generous and sweet with the staff and there was so much trust that pervaded the experience that when his body recovered, the doc said, I didn't heal you, your God did. Isn't that good? Or the story of an unbeliever struggling with homosexual desire who found a trusted, non-gossiping, listening ear in a Christian friend and was attracted to the light by their Christian life. Or the story of one teenager whose life was changed as he spent time in the home of a Christian friend observing that Christian friend's parents and watched the dad bring home roses for mom on the occasion of their anniversary, something he had never seen and something that he wanted. That house, so much smaller than his house. Those cars, not as nice as the cars at his home, but that home bright and his cold and it's what he wanted. Or the other person being transformed right now who is thrilled about the idea of sin because it makes sense out of so much trouble in their life. And now when they drive around and they look at people in their cars, they think they don't know about sin. They don't know. They're in the dark. And I was just there. It's all they know. Compassion. And of course, the faithful Christian witness doesn't always lead to conversion. One sister in Christ emailed this week, works in an environment directly hostile to Christians, uh, gossip and slander of Christians are standard fare. It's just constant. Recently been asked to do something at work that would violate her conscience, going to have to say no, going to have to explain to a person that they've developed trust with and they feel they have rapport with. And it may go bad. And if it goes good with them, it might go bad with others. Well, Peter was there listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain. His words are for her. For her job is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called her out of darkness and into his marvelous light and to keep her conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against her as evildoers, they may see her good deeds and glorify her father in heaven one day. And they may not come around, but maybe they will. Get this, almost as though God was preparing me for this sermon. In the last two weeks, two day-making contacts. Two weeks ago, a call from a friend in Louisville. Me and others shared the gospel with him. We discussed the idea of sin with him. He laughed at us. We were all friends, but I mean, he just wouldn't have any of it. And we wouldn't let it go. Uh, he, he's living in an evil way. But um, sure enough, he gets my Christmas card a week or so ago and calls me up. And thanks me how much it means to him that he still gets a card from us and that we're still in touch. And we just talk for about 10 minutes. And then I get a text from him a day later. Hey, do you have a children's Bible that you would recommend? I'm just like, awesome. Of course. So I gave him a couple links and told him to follow up with me. I'm praying for the kid. I'm praying for him. Then last week, I received a contact about an old friend in the same circle of friends. A guy I'd share hours with, hanging out, talking, went to his uh, Christmas uh, Halloween party every year. Uh, he, his wife and my wife, we got together sometimes. You think, never crack him. Lo and behold, he's getting baptized on the 22nd. He's come to faith in Christ. I can't tell you how happy I am about that. You might not ever know when or how these things eventually come around if the Lord works in their life. But keep making deposits, keep shining your light. About four years ago, a family walked into church. Tim Bradley greeted them and they said, I got your balloon. I'm like, what balloon? Well, the balloon, the invitation to church. Tim knew nothing about the balloon, but he welcomed them just the same and you might be out there. I love this story. As it turns out, one of the children's Sunday school classes went rogue. And don't feel ashamed. Uh, the teacher got creative, made little balloons, little notes, invitations to church and sent those things off into the sky. And it landed in someone's tree about half a mile away. And they thought, well, I guess we'll go to church. <laughs> so who knows 
Who knows who's prayed for them? Who knows who shined the light into their life? Who knows who exposed the darkness and, and was repelled uh, from them? By, uh, who they were repelled by? Whatever. Uh, here they are. They get an invitation. Some of us plant, some of us water. God brings the growth. They got an invitation in a tree. Well, this was not a sermon on preaching the gospel, which requires words. It was a sermon on that primer for the paint, the good works which show the gospel to be as beautiful as it is. But let us not lock this sermon up without stating the obvious. If others are to see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, they are going to need to know where those good works come from. They're going to need to hear the gospel from someone. They're going to need to make the connection between your life and that gospel. They're going to need to hear words. Otherwise, live as long as you want as a good neighbor and have them watch you go to church every Sunday. You will only reinforce their, their assumption they already have about where that kind of life comes from. Some people are just better than others. Don't let it all go to waste. Use words. Share the gospel. There is no information in your good works. Good works need gospel words if others will glorify God for them. But gospel words do need good works. For good works show off, as we've said, how attractive Christ really is. And so brothers and sisters, let's hear these words in closing. You are the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. And so in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful, vivid, much-needed passage. And we thank you especially for how this command for Jesus' disciples to be fishers of men and to be light in the world follows from your very heart, which sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners because of his love for the world. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, which we seek to beautify and to hold up in our good works. The cross where Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners. What a marvelous work of sacrifice and love that is. And the only explanation for the lives that you create in your church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.